Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Fiona McQuarrie, the author of Songbook, 21 Songs from 10 Years, 1964 to 1974. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you for asking me. So you open and you write to the readers to think of this book as the textual equivalent of crate digging in a record shop. That's both a great line and a great visual. Can you explain that? What I was thinking when I wrote that line was that the book has songs from the same time period, but they're not all from the same genre. They're all from different artists. They're not in alphabetical order. So I kind of envisioned it as being one of those crates in the record store that's just full of random stuff. And you go through it and something grabs your attention and hopefully you end up with something that really uh, speaks to you. You point out that people may know some of these artists and they may not, but these records all tell a story and sometimes several stories, in fact. Yeah, for every song in the book, and also I would say for every song in general, there's a story within the song itself, which is the story of what is the song about, uh, what is it trying to tell or what is it trying to convey. But then there's the other story of how the song came to be and the subsequent story of what happened to the song once it was released and once it was out there in the world. So there's multiple stories in every song. And what I was trying to do with the book for each of the 21 songs in it is to unpick all of those stories and weave them together into a single narrative. And you write that the seeds of this book were planted in 1967. Well, in Canada, 1967 was the uh, anniversary of Confederation when the modern version of the country was first formally founded. And it was a really interesting time in Canadian popular culture because Canada being neighbor to the U.S., up to that point, being a successful Canadian musician usually meant being successful in the United States. But with the uh, centennial in 1967, there was a real sense of Canadian pride going on that Canada should be proud of its own artists because a lot of them told Canadian stories and a lot of them were really good musicians as well. And that year I was nine years old. Something that happened in Vancouver where I grew up was a local musician called Tom Northcott had a big regional hit with a version of Donovan's song, Sunny Good Street. This was really unusual for me because I love that song. And I didn't realize until I was much older that it was actually a Donovan song. And it wasn't until I was probably in my early 20s that I heard Donovan's original version, which is quite different. So that was sort of an eye-opener for me. And also how a song can change once it's been released and other artists uh, take it up and cover it and adapt it. And you became fascinated as a kid with music trivia, but in particular, it was the albums and singles charts. What was that about? You know, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure I can, <laughs> I'm yet able to answer it. I guess the best parallel I can think of is it's sort of like being uh, fascinated by a sport, like which team wins and which team loses and by how much and what happens the next time they play. Hmm. And I remember uh, looking at the charts and just being really interested in the weird anomalies, like songs that were popular that I knew that didn't either show up under charts or showed up much lower in the charts than I thought they would be. And I just found that whole process so fascinating. And now knowing a lot more about the music business than I did then, I'm a lot more cynical about why <laughs> records end up in certain, certain places on the charts, but I'm still interested in that whole process. It was probably a lot more interesting and 
carefree back in the early 60s. So you also became an album collector, and you had a focus on what you call oddities and things at your local record store that nobody else seemed to want. Yeah, the clearance bins were always great fun for me. I would pick up records not necessarily just because they were cheap, although that would help. I ended up with some records that I really enjoyed. I would have probably paid full price for them if they hadn't been in the clearance bin. But I was just intrigued by what was in there and why it ended up there, even if it was a successful artist that had had other hit records. Why was this record suddenly in the clearance bin? And one thing that was really useful in pursuing that particular direction was at the time, Vancouver had a very competitive record store scene. There were, I'm just counting in my head, probably four or five major record stores in addition to the record departments in the department stores, which were still a thing then. So there was a lot of competition, a lot of price competition, and a lot of competition to have something that the other stores didn't. It was a great time to be a a record buyer. And I'm sure you hit all the stores when you go out. Do you have an all-time greatest find from the crates? Um, the ones that I treasure the most and most of which I still have is that was also during the time when bootlegs started Mm. coming out on vinyl. And I have a couple of Elton John bootlegs that are studio demos and work that he did uh, before he became famous. They also have a lot of uh, tracks that haven't been released formally and that aren't even on YouTube. So those have a special place in my heart. (laughs) Yeah, those were always super exciting. Let's talk about your book. The music magazine Shindig played a big role in the birth of this book, too. Absolutely, yep, because Songbook was the editor of of Shindig's idea. A couple of years ago, they put out a call on their Facebook page. Uh, Shindig is co-edited by Sandy Morton and John Mojo Mills. Andy and John put a post on the magazine's Facebook page, first because I'd been a music critic at a newspaper and then been a freelancer. I was struck by how unusual this was to ask for writers, because that doesn't happen much. But they mentioned something that at the time they called story of a song, which would be going through the history of a song and all the different versions of it. And I looked at this and thought, you know, I used to write about music. That's something I could do. So I sent them a note and said, here's what I'd like to do. And they said, sure, okay, what song do you want to do? And the first one that came to mind was Funny Good Street, partly Mm. because I thought Tom Northcott's version should get a lot more attention than it ever did outside of British Columbia. So they explained what they wanted. The last time I had written about music, even as a freelancer, this is going to sound like the days when dinosaurs roamed the earth, but there was no YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) There was no secondhand songs website. There was very little internet. So I had all these resources now that I didn't have the last time I wrote about music. And I also have a bookshelf full of books that have followed me through many house moves uh, that are reference books on uh, music and uh, rock history. So I kind of pulled all this together, sent it off to John and Andy. I just had no idea (laughs) what they were going to make of it, but I had fun doing it. And they ended up putting it in the magazine. And that sort of kicked off a whole series of what became called Songbook. And it was also through Shindig that the book happened because another writer at Shindig, Greg Healy, had published a book with the same publisher of his stories about 1950s and 60s British children's TV shows and how they reflected what was going on in British society at the time. So Greg contacted me and said, 
you know, songbook would make a great book. Why don't you contact my publisher? And that's how it happened. The rest is history. You know, your book is a really interesting one. You know, there are some curiosities, and it's 64 to 74, so some of them I didn't know, such as the Canadian one you mentioned. But it's a great book to go back and listen to things and discover new things. I have to ask, why 21 songs? Um... It wasn't a deliberate decision to do 21 songs. It's just kind of how it worked out. I had a certain number of shindig columns that I used as a basis for about a third of the chapters. And I didn't want to make the book too overwhelming in terms of length. I wanted the songs to really stand out and not just to be one in a series. And with the length of chapters, 21 songs, it seemed to be just about the right number. So it really wasn't a conscious decision. It's just how it ended up. So I'm curious about your selection process for the songs included. Did you start year by year or just by the first year? Did you pick a favorite and go from there and fill in the years? How did that work? Most, I shouldn't say most, a fair number of the songs were already, had already been Collins and Shindig. And some of those were subjects that John and Andy chose. And others were ones that I thought about and suggested to them. So I had that as a starting point. I didn't want to make this into best song of the year because it's not it's not intended as that. Uh, there are some years where there are more than one song. There are some years where there are is only one song. It's kind of like the Tom Northcott song that I always really liked and that didn't get a lot of commercial attention, like Long John Baldry doing Everything Stops for Tea. I, I guess the, the basic guideline was at least one song per year. And we, we achieved that. But beyond that, I didn't really want to put any strict rules on about it had to chart at a certain level. Or The, the one constraint I think that I, we did decide on was partly to be able to write an entire chapter about it, was that the song had to have been covered at least once. Although there is one chapter in the book of a song that, as far as I can tell, has never been covered. Uh, so, so we had the rule, but we broke it. <laughs> Well, I will say also, I'll tell our readers or listeners rather, the back cover of your book promises the occasional dose of snark. And we'll we'll get into that because as I was reading <laughs> through it, I'd jot down and say, there's some snark there. Um, <laughs> you know, you write that what your book likes to demonstrate is that the song is at the heart of why we love music. Why do you believe it's the song that is of primal importance? I think it's because the song is the building block for everything else. And when I say song, I mean, this book is all songs that have lyrics, but I think it would apply to instrumental pieces as well, is that songs get put together to make albums and get put together to make singles and EPs. And like we said, each song is a little story. Or you can have a set of different songs on the same album that all talk about different things. But the songs are like, the little Lego pieces that make up the big house, if that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Let's dig into some of those songs and their stories. I made some notes and picked some out. And uh, one of your early entries is a song that, to me, really speaks to what you're talking about, songs and their origins and where they might go by other artists. And that's Ico Ico, which was generally credited to James Sugarboy Crawford. But you use perhaps my favorite version and probably the most popular is by the Dixie Cups. Why their version? I chose that one because that was the one that charted, although it also made a really good sort of anchor point to go back in time and talk about where the song came from and then to go forward in time and talk about other artists who did it. And the Dixie Cups version was also interesting because of the later legal battles 
upset the Dixie Cups have with their management over credit and royalties for for their version. So that particular album is sort of an ongoing story, even though the record came out in a specific year. Yeah, that's an interesting one, because that's one of the songs in the book that has a lot of stories. You know, certainly one story behind the song is obscured by the bouncy sing-along feel of that version. But it's an often, you know, some violence or, or bad feelings, I guess. Oh, yeah. And it also is a very New Orleans song in the sense that the different interpretations of where it came from, uh, there's some versions that say that it came from the uh, native Indian tribes that originally inhabited that part of the world. And there are others who say that it came from uh, the enslaved peoples that passed through New Orleans on their way into the U.S. And then there's also the tie-in with uh, Mardi Gras. And with Eiko Eiko being possibly a marching song for a crew in a Mardi Gras parade and sort of a declaration of territory and toughness and staking your ground. In all those interpretations, they all sort of tie into the history of the very specific history of what New Orleans and that part of Louisiana is about in terms of the mix of cultures and personalities and uh, influences. And if Dixie Cup's version is 1A, then 1B for me has got to be Dr. John's take, who obviously Mm -hmm. is the New Orleans king. And uh, you tell a very cool story of how that song was picked to be the single. Can you tell that story to our listeners? Yeah, I love this story, too. It was his little daughter. He played the record to her and asked her uh, which song should be the single, and she chose that one. I think that also speaks to, uh, I don't want to say loose, because that sounds kind of unprofessional, but uh, how things were different in the record industry then. I don't know if you could go to a label now and say my two-year-old daughter thinks this should be the single, <laughs> and they <laughs> they would listen to you. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great story. It is. Can you tell us also, you mentioned some things that we often learn later about things that we loved as children, and you point to the music as kind of a snapshot of that? Yeah, like Aiko Aiko is, like you say, it's got a bouncy feel. It's a fun song. You can sort of chant along to it. But given the possible interpretations of where it comes from and the stories that that ties into of enslavement and oppression and uh, Native peoples having their lands taken away from them, it put me in mind of uh, fairy tales and how fairy tales in their original versions are often very explicit and violent. Like the story that I mentioned in the book is the story of Cinderella. And in the Disney version, the ugly stepsisters try on the glass slipper and it won't fit. And they're like, oh, oh, no. In one of the original versions, the folk tales that that came from, the ugly stepsisters actually chop off their toes to be able to put their foot in the glass slipper and there's blood pouring out of the glass slipper and uh, there's sort of a whole darker dimension to uh, fairy stories that we don't know when we're kids and probably we shouldn't (laughs) because some of them are very scary those backstories that are what really interest me. Yeah, obviously. And, and that's a, a good point that it happens elsewhere too. You know, what's amazing. And your book goes into these, how many and, and how varied the artists were that covered this song. There was a ton of them. Am I wrong in thinking that the Grateful Dead caught some of your snark in there? Uh, no, that would not be wrong. <laughs> One of my friends says, it's not the dead I don't like, it's their fans I can't stand. And <laughs> I, I appreciate the Grateful Dead's musicianship, but I have to say I don't particularly enjoy listening to their music. That being said, the story with Aiko Aiko uh, is when one of them had his kids at a show and he decided to give them a surprise 
and he dressed up as Barney, the purple dinosaur, and came out on stage and played Ico Ico. And I must admit, I pretty much fell off my chair laughing at the idea of all these stone Grateful Dead fans <laughs> grooving, and then suddenly a purple dinosaur from a kids' show appears on the stage and what their reaction uh, must have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be Phil Lesh. And, and I am a deadhead, but I know where you're coming from because sometimes <laughs> it can be a, a, quite a task. You know, also what's amazing is how many different versions made in, into movie soundtracks. I guess that's a testament to the song's durability, but it was in a lot of movies. It has. It has, and a lot of different versions, too, not all the same version. But I think because it's a relatively short song and because it's got such a catchy rhythm, it makes a really good segue from scene to scene or to underlie a scene of travel or fun or uh, or a party. So I can see it being very, uh, very useful as a soundtrack song. Yeah, and you detail that, and it's fun to go through that because you can kind of pick out the scene in your head and then you hear the song, and it's just a fun exercise. We're speaking with Fiona McQuarrie, the author of Songbook, 21 Songs from 10 Years, 1964 to 1974. So the next song on my list out of your book just stunned me. I always assumed Stevie Wonder wrote A Place in the Sun because it just sounds so perfect for him, but no. No, it was written by uh, Ron Miller and Brian Wells, who were Motown staff songwriters and who were also quite unusual at Motown because they were both white. I was lucky enough to actually find Brian Wells. He works as a pianist and composer uh, in New York City now, and I was able to interview him, which was quite a wonderful experience. He and Miller wrote that song, and their demo was taken to one of the famous Friday meetings at Motown, where Barry Gordy and all the executives would get together and listen to the songs that had been recorded that week and decide which ones would be released as singles. What happened was there was an artist and producer, Clarence Paul, who was also on Motown, who wanted that song. And he recorded a demo of it himself and took that demo to the Friday meeting. And he played it, and Barry Gordy looked at him and said, nope, this one is for Stevie. Wow. And you write in your book that the, the songwriters actually believed A Place in the Sun was a country song, right? Yeah. Brian Wells told me that when he hears it, he hears it as sort of a classic country song. And when you listen to it with that in mind, you can really hear it has that kind of gentle loping rhythm. And he also mentioned that people asked him, did they write it because of the movie of the same name, which was set in the country? And he said, no, that was completely separate. And they weren't inspired by the title or anything, but it came out sounding like a country song. And some country artists did record it later on as well. This is an interesting one because it, it also has several threads. And it was first recorded by Stevie Wonder in 1966. And by 1970, nearly 20 other artists had covered it. I can't think of a single another version except for Stevie's. You're right when you say it's his song. It is his song. He owns that thing. I think part of the issue, and this comes up with some of the other songs in the book too, is when a song has been a huge hit for one artist, other artists can cover it, but it might be hard to get some commercial traction with a cover version of a song that's already been a huge hit for someone else. And within Motown, politics was kind of a no-no for a while. Barry Gordy, you know, famously did not want to do that. But this one seems so perfect for both the artist and the label and the times that it just happened, I guess. Yeah, because Motown, when it started out, was very much into chart-friendly singles and records. And then when um, 
the civil rights movement started happening, there started to be attention paid to the racism that was going on in the U.S., and which unfortunately is still going on as we see today. Motown sort of got the reputation of becoming outdated, that they were more interested in catering to a white suburban audience than they were to addressing the issues that were facing black people and especially being located in Detroit, where there was a lot of racial tension at that time. I think A Place in the Sun wasn't specifically recorded as a protest song, but it certainly took on that aura with the lyrics about yearning for a better place and moving on. And it was also kind of interesting that it was on the first album where Stevie Wonder sort of broke out of being uh, Little Stevie Wonder. Right. And the cover art for the album is not him in a glamorous suit with Hollywood lighting. It's him sitting, wearing regular street clothes, sitting on a stoop in a urban neighborhood. I think it was sort of a transitional song for him as well, sort of getting out of that pop mode and getting into more socially aware records and advocacy. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And The Temptations and Diana Ross and the Supremes would also record this song together. And that was rather contentious, according to your book. Yeah, it was. <laughs> because both of those acts were going through some difficult times when they worked together. Uh, it might even be a stretch to say together because they may not have even been in the studio at the same time. The Motown had this uh, strategy uh, with their artists for some of them they called piggybacking which would be to take an artist that uh, attracted one audience and an artist that attracted a different audience and get them to make a record together so that they could each draw on the other artist's audience. At the time, this was also when Barry Gordy decided that Diana Ross should be pushed as either as a solo artist or as the leader of the Supremes. What was particularly ironic about this was that members of The Temptations and the members of The Supremes, including Diana Ross, all grew up in the same neighborhood in Detroit, so they'd known each other since they were quite small. And then all of a sudden, the Temptations were being told by Motown to call her Miss Ross, <laughs> and also that she was going to be the lead 
on this record. And if you actually look at the finished Temptation Supremes record that A Place in the Sun is on, her face is quite large and all the other musicians' faces are quite small. The other big conflict that happened was that uh, because of the vocal capabilities of the members, the Temptations and the Supremes usually did their songs in different keys. When they first got together to work on this song, it was for a TV special. All the music was written in the Temptations keys. The Supremes, who weren't Diana Ross, were okay with this, but Diana Ross was not okay with Mm. it. Allegedly, she went and made a phone call to Barry Gordy, and the next day when the two groups came back, all the music uh, for the backing musicians had been rearranged to be in Diana Ross's key. And they did not take too kindly to this. Yeah, (laughs) that's what happened. They ended up making the record. It's not a bad version, but to me it it sounds like two separate groups singing different lines of the song. It doesn't really, to me, come together as a as a complete whole. Hmm. Well, you know, this chapter uh, of this song continued to shatter my Stevie Wonder illusions. <laughs> um, this songwriting duo who wrote um, A Place in the Sun also wrote Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday, Heaven Help Us All, and shockingly, Someday at Christmas. Am I alone in thinking that these were all Stevie songs? They are Stevie songs. <laughs> Um, and he obviously had the most uh, success with them. After those songs, Miller uh, went off to do some solo work, uh, solo writing, I should say, and Brian uh, went off to pursue his own career doing soundtracks, and he does quite a lot of backing music for commercials as well. So that was sort of the end of their run with Motown, but it was very interesting to talk to him about his time there and his experience, because it was sort of like being invited into the Magic Palace and having wonderful things happen to you, and he's, he's very proud of the work that he did while he was there. Yeah, it might have been short, but that was a hell of a run. I mean, most of those songs Oh, no kidding. Those are all Stevie Wonder must have. Um, Perhaps fittingly, next up is the first cut is the deepest. And uh, Cat Stevens wrote this, but it was Rod Stewart who made it famous. Yes, Cat Stevens wrote it because another artist, P.P. Arnold, who was on his label, needed a song. They had the same manager and the same producer. So he wrote it for her, and then he ended up recording it himself. But it was uh, Rod Stewart that had the largest hit with it. And one of the things I found interesting is Rod Stewart, I think he recorded it at Muscle Shoals, but when he got down there, he didn't believe the backing band on this take was who they were supposed to be. Yeah, he thought that everyone who played at Muscle Shoals was black. <laughs> so he actually walked into the studio uh, and saw them playing. And he <laughs> walked out of the uh, studio and went to Tom Dowd, who was the house producer, and said, that's not the Muscle Shoals band because they're all white. <laughs> He explained that he thought they were all black, and he said, no, no, this can't possibly be them. Tom Dowd took him back into uh, the studio and told the guys to play the song, and they played it, and Rod stood there and with his jaw open and said, I can't believe it. They're, they're, they're black, but they're white. <laughs> that song appears on Rod's 1976 album, A Night on the Town. Also, Your Snark reappears here on the first take of the single of this album, which was not first cut as the deepest. No, it was Tonight's the Night. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know too many people who think that's a good song. <laughs> I'm sure it did too, quite well for him uh, financially, but uh, yeah, it's not a good no. song. No. Um, but, you know, it did well enough to give the album some commercial legs, and I suppose without it, the uh, first cut 
wouldn't have had the chance to become the huge single that it did. So I'll give it props <laughs> for that. But musically, I don't think it's a good song. Well, the first cut is The Deepest is an incredible song, and it had an amazing run in Jamaica in the late 60s and early 70s. There were 20-plus versions. And then Cheryl Crow recently did a really good version of it as a, a standalone for her Greatest Hits compilation. Yeah, I have a real soft spot for Cheryl Crow. She has a very strong musical resume. And I think because, at least in her career as a pop star, her videos look like perfume commercials. You know, it was all about Cheryl's hair and Cheryl's teeth. And, you know, she's a very, a very pretty woman. But I really think that that sort of overshadowed what a great musician and songwriter she actually is. And I think she did a good, a really good job with that version. It wasn't as maybe as widely known as some of the others because it was an album only track on her greatest hit. But uh, I think she did a really fine job with it. Yeah, I'm wondering how uh, Rod's version gets down to. Well, actually, it wouldn't have been his. It would have been Cut Stevens because it was the late '60s and the early '70s in Jamaica. And I'm sure they didn't know Tonight's the Night yet. Uh, there's there's a whole <laughs> run of those songs, uh, mostly with female vocals, but it's some great versions of that. You know, they they honed pretty closely to the original too so um, it's worth exploring oh very much so yeah uh, let's talk feeling all right you introduced this song in a story saying it's a song about turmoil and uncertainty and that's exactly what it caused for dave mason the writer and joe cocker who covered the song what's that all about well, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, it's about being unsure, but feeling all right, but still not quite sure about uh, how things are going. And Dave Mason, at that point, was in traffic, but he was also in and out of traffic a couple of times. He quit because he didn't like the touring, and then he came back. I think he also felt, and this, this came out in his later interviews about that song, because traffic worked communally, they did the finding ourselves in the country shtick where you rent a big house and everybody goes and lives there. And I think he felt that uh, the music that was developed out of that communal living and communal jamming, that maybe he didn't get as much credit as he should have for its contributions. He also, uh, according to him, signed a really bad publishing deal where he didn't get as much royalties as he thought he should have from the later success of the song. For Joe Cocker, too, he had a huge hit with that song, obviously, and, but he was also struggling with how popular he had suddenly become and the uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour, which was successful in some ways, but which was a complete train wreck in other ways. He knew right from the start that he wasn't a songwriter, that he his strength was in covering, and I think he's one of the most brilliant cover artists of all time. So I think he was sure in that sense that that's where his musical direction lay, but I think he was trying to figure out, how do I go about and get there? Yeah, and it, it ended up kind of career highlight meets ambivalence for both of them. Very much so. Dave Mason still does the song live. Uh, Joe Cocker, it was a part of his set right up until he passed away. Actually, one of the uh, really interesting versions of it is some of the live versions that you can see on YouTube that he did towards the end of his career. And it's still it's still a great live song. He, he just did it so well. Speaking of great live versions, you sent me down a YouTube wormhole uh, <laughs> suggesting, uh, you know, I check out, not me, but the reader, check out the live version with Isaac Hayes in 1974 with the Osmond Brothers. That is, uh, yeah, that was strange. 
it was strange, but you know, it's <laughs> it's actually not a bad version. It's not as cringeworthy as you would think. <laughs> Listening to those names of those two artists together, like what? It's actually a pretty good version. The Osmonds, you know, they do a certain type of music, but they are decent musicians. Uh, there were family acts that have a lot worse musicians in them. They they took what they did quite seriously, and obviously they're not on the same musical plane as Isaac Hayes, but it's a better version than you would expect, let's put it that it, way. It is actually funkier than I might have imagined until Donnie chimes in. As soon as he comes in, it's over. But uh, it's, it's quite a take, I'll give it that. I, I think, you know, it, <laughs> it points to that song, too, and, and the durability and, and the, you know, the lives that it has. You mentioned Joe Cocker and his live act. And, of course, there is a classic Joe Cocker, John Belushi take on that song on Saturday Night Live in 1976. And I do have to say, Joe must have a pretty damn good sense of humor because (laughs) that is hilarious. Yeah, I agree. He must have had a fabulous sense of humor, (laughs) not only to go on the highest rated late night TV show and do it, but to have someone imitating him right next to him. That I think that shows a really good attitude, a lot of confidence in what he was doing and not taking himself too seriously. Agreed. And I, I think that's one of my favorite clips of that song. It is really good. I mean, it's also a great a great band behind him. And uh, it's just so funny to watch yeah. because Belushi is, is dead on. <laughs> We're speaking with Fiona Macquarie, whose book, Songbook, 21 Songs from 10 Years, 1964 to 1974, is out now. Here's my last one. And boy, was I not suspecting this in your book. Uh, It is perhaps my favorite Brian Eno album, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy. And if you didn't have me before, you had me with this opening sentence, Art Rock. The very words can induce repulsion, even in experienced music fans. Yeah, I've been to way too many concerts that are art rock. You know, people who look grim, who are crashing industrial things together on stage. I don't want to diss bands that do that and do it well, because I do think there is a lot of value and a lot of importance in challenging what people think of as music and getting them to expand their perception a little bit. But sometimes it's just like, oh, get over yourself. <laughs> well, you go on. That There's there's more in that paragraph, uh, dear listeners, that if you pick it up, it, it, I could have quoted the whole paragraph. It was hilarious. But the song that closes out 1974 in your book is The True Wheel from that album. And I have to say, you know, why this song? What's the story? And, and also note that, you know, for Brian Eno, mostly I think in album terms, not song terms. So I did have to go back and kind of dig this up and, and listen specifically to that track. So um, why? Well, I started from I Love Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy. That would be one of my 10 Desert Island discs, just because it's so unexpected and it's not what you would expect from someone whose last musical job was uh, wearing a feather boa and twiddling the knobs in Roxy Music. True Wheel is one of my favorite songs off it because it has a great beat and uh, it's just such an interesting sounding song so it's really fun to listen to. Eno went about making this album in very different ways. He recorded a whole lot of stuff on tape, just, and when I say stuff, I mean stuff, like just little musical ideas and thoughts and lyrics. He got Phil Manzanera, the guitarist in Roxy Music, to go through the tapes and pick out stuff that could be uh, developed into a song. The album has a theme in a way. 
that the title references, the songs on Taking Tiger Mountain are all very different from each other. And they're just so different sounding, not in a harsh or a discordant way. In some ways, it's actually a very poppy sounding record. But it's just so creative and so interesting. And also, it Eno doesn't have a lot of formal musical training, not as a singer or as a keyboard player. or I don't even know if he has um, musical training in the sense of any theory or being able to read music. But just that someone with that interesting, varied background could produce a record like this is quite fascinating to me. Yeah, and this album was famously shaped by Chinese postcards and also Eno's Oblique Strategies cards, right? Eno was quite interested in, um, well, being uh, a graduate of art school, uh, he was interested in different forms of uh, artistic expression. And when he was in uh, San Francisco in uh, Chinatown, I believe this is while he was on tour with Roxy Music, he purchased a, a set of postcards that showed what he called a propagandist Maoist Chinese ballet that showed that with a ballet that was about a battle between the Chinese army and the imperialists. He became uh, interested in the theme of taking Tiger Mountain and the theme of strategy. And strategy led to him making notes to himself, part of which were the oral notes that Phil Manzanera sorted through. And he ended up developing that into his card deck that he called Oblique Strategies that he created with his friend Peter Schmidt, who was also an artist. And these were unconnected statements and sort of like the uh, I Ching in uh, Chinese culture, uh, the idea was that if you were stuck creatively or if you had a decision to make, you could flip through the cards and randomly pick one out and do something based on what the card said. So I think that also explains a lot of the variety of the sounds on the album is that the oblique strategies were used to decide which direction a song should go in. And the 801 in the lyrics is what? Uh, Eno says that it was a dream that he had where there was a boat that was being rowed up to a dock. The people that were rowing and also the people on the dock were singing, we are the 801, we are the central shaft, which is the chorus or the the hook of the song itself. And uh, he woke up and wrote it down and made it into a song. And uh, then we get into internet conspiracy theories of what does 801 actually mean? (laughs) Uh, there's, uh, you could look at Eno's own surname, uh, as being 801, eight is eight, uh, zero is, uh, not for the N and one is one. Um, some, uh, numeric and alphabetic systems use that number as a representation of God. Um, (laughs) some people say that it has something to do with theories of racial superiority because some of those identify eight ethnicities. So, yeah, it's, uh, I like the dream explanation. Yeah, <laughs> I'm honest. But there, but there's a, it just, it's, there's a lot of different ways that it's been interpreted. Yeah, that was a strand, though, that you chased down, and it was interesting, but I agree with you. I'm going to go with the dream. As you explained, not many, if any, musicians cover Brian Eno, but you were able to talk to one guy who does in his band called Music for Enophiles, and what was his take on this song? This uh, was an interview I did specifically for the book, and Larry Heineman is the leader of music for Eno Files. I knew that Eno had not played these songs himself live. He did some songs from Taking Tiger Mountain in what we would call very early versions of music videos. And some of them he did in a band that was uh, he was in with Phil Manzanera briefly that was called 801. 
But I wondered, has anyone else covered these? So I started Googling and YouTubing, and I found Music for Enophiles. And Larry, the leader, uh, he was one of the founding musical members of the Blue Man Group, and he's a musician in uh, New York. He put together this band of uh, musical friends and acquaintances. Uh, they do concerts every couple of months, and they play Eno songs live. And he told me that he knew that none of these songs had been performed live to any great extent. And he thought they were great songs and that they deserved to be heard live. So he's put together this group. They play the songs live. And the True Wheel uh, is in their set because uh, he, he says it's a monster. <laughs> uh, he says that audiences really enjoy how intense it is. And it really goes over well live. Part of the reason he did the Music for Enophiles project is to see how audiences reacted to hearing these songs live when they've really only been preserved on record at studio performances. He says it's quite amazing. I asked him what sort of people come to the show, and he said there's people who are the hardcore Eno fans who know these records and want to hear them live, but there's other people who just randomly end up at the show. Uh, they might know who Eno is, but they don't know about his early 1970s records, and they just they love it. They have a grand time. And another thing he mentioned is that in Music for Enophiles, there are four vocalists, so they're able to do the call and response parts of the song quite uh, effectively. Wow. wow. Well, we've been talking to Fiona McQuarrie, whose book is Songbook, 21 Songs from 10 Years, 1964 to 1974. It's a really good read. It's fun. It's interesting. It'll, it'll definitely make you go down a rabbit hole or two. I have to ask you, Fiona, any plans to continue the series? When should we expect 1975 to 1985? Uh, it is something I'm going to do. Okay, okay. <laughs> it is. I'm still working on the outline and deciding what songs to fit in there and uh, how feasible they are. One thing that I found doing this book that was quite interesting was, as I mentioned, there wasn't a conscious choice to do this particular time frame. But I discovered that when bookstores and libraries catalog books like this, they do it by decades, 60s, 70s, mm. 80s, so on. So if you have a book that spans two decades, it gets listed in two categories, hey. which means people have twice as much chance of finding it. So I am going to keep that 10-year time frame yeah. <laughs> spanning two decades. It's not, you're taking uh, Barry Gordy's piggybacking uh, strategy there. It sounds <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, 75 to 85 should be a fascinating read. So uh, let us know. Keep us involved. And we'd love to have you back on for it. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Fiona. If you'd like to find out more about her book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music-books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 